Question show time. Your questions, my answers, as always. Whenever a question pops into your brain, uh, write it down, gather them up. I'll answer them here. Once again, just too awful and cold and wet and dark to use our outside green screen. So we're going to use our inside green screen today. People always wonder, like, why do you shoot outside? Because it's really hard to light inside. Carla is, uh, is, has been enraged by, uh, by trying to light the, <laughs> the house inside. So hopefully we'll be able to get back outside where the lighting is so much easier. All right, on to the questions. Anon B, can humans meaningfully study them all? Machines will find them, but I doubt there are enough scientists to study even 100,000 planets properly. The only way we can deal with this data is by automation. We got a lot of comments on the latest video about the estimate that we will know of 100 million exoplanets by 2050. And of course, these numbers are so gigantic, scientists aren't gonna be studying them individually. In the same way that scientists don't study all of the stars that we know of individually. The Gaia spacecraft found 1.4 billion stars, uh, studied their motions and their brightness, and that's too many for any one person to study. And that's kind of the point, right? Is that you shift from finding one planet and studying it and moving to large statistics. But when we talk about knowing that there are exoplanets, that we will have discovered exoplanets, it's still, we're still gonna have the same information. So we will know the planet's orbit. We will know maybe their radius. We'll maybe know their mass. We might know information about their atmosphere, the star they orbit, chemicals, uh, their distance from the star, how many planets there are in the star system. Like we're gonna start getting big statistics. And for most situations, that's all we'll know. That's all we'll care to know, right? Is, oh, we know of, of the 100 million exoplanets that we know of so far, there are 20 million Earth-sized worlds and 40 million Jupiter-sized worlds and 10 million super Neptunes and so on and so forth, right? It's gonna be large statistics. And astronomers love large statistics like that. That's super useful that they can then say, okay, you know, is the solar system normal? What are the kinds of planets? What can we expect as we learn more and more about the universe? We would assume that the rest of the universe is going to have similar ratios of large planets to small planets to rocky worlds to gas giants to ice planets. So I promise you that astronomers will be able to find uh, tremendous amounts of information about all of that. And then at the same time, the more big numbers that you have, if you have 100 million, then you get weird stuff, right? For every billion stars, maybe we find one Boyajian star. Um, so for every 100 million planets, maybe we're gonna find a couple of really interesting ones. Maybe we're gonna find the ones with strange chemicals in their atmosphere or orbiting their stars in a, in a weird direction in a way that didn't make sense or we didn't think was possible. So that's why the more planets we know about, the more this whole work, the sort of better uh, we understand about the place of the Earth in the rest of the universe. So it's gonna be very exciting. Chem drive. Hey Fraser, it seems like the reason interest in space exploration is so low at the moment is societies expect a tangible return on investment on any major project. 
Do you think that we could somehow achieve a true post-scarcity economy? If we did, would we perhaps be more interested as a society in doing things like space exploration and colonization just because they're awesome? I don't know. Like if we actually do get to a post-scarcity economy, and I think for some people in the world, we're, we're already there, but for the vast majority of people, we're still in a scarcity economy. But maybe as growth continues, uh, we will reach a place where we don't have to worry about money. But I don't know whether then we will want to focus on space exploration or whether we'll just want to spend more time having fun and spending time with our friends and family. We, we just don't know. These are, these are things that have never happened in the history of humanity, and so we have no idea. Science fiction tries to figure that out. When you think about, say, Star Trek, you've got peaceful exploration of the universe, but other science fiction deals with it in different ways. So I don't really know. And I don't know whether we can know what we'll do in a post-scarcity economy. It seems like we will probably do human being things because that's what we always do. So we'll bring along our humanity with us into whatever it looks like after that. But still, a post-scarcity economy is is feels like it's still really far away. There's still a lot of... Um, there's a huge divide between the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor, and we've got a long way to go. And even if we do, then maybe there will be unemployment. Uh, if you watch The Expanse, they deal with this really well, where essentially Earth, Mars, even the Belters, all have like a really huge gap between the rich and the poor. Even though they have amazing technologies, Tons of people are unemployed all the time. And maybe that's what's going to happen. With increased amounts of automation, everyone's going to be unemployed and they're going to just get mad. So again, I don't know. Uh, I hope it's peaceful and I hope it goes well. Norman Matson, Why not try a high-fidelity analog Mars-based settlement in the Atacama Desert and try out for real technologies for in-situ resource utilization with the materials on hand, hydroponic farming, power systems, water extraction, you name it. It would be the next step from the analog Mars bases that the Interplanetary Society is running on Devon Island and elsewhere. How many times do you need teams of mock Mars astronauts running around on quad cycles with rock hammers? If we can't do it here on Earth, it's going to be orders of magnitude tougher on Mars with zero margin for errors. I think you're exactly right. And I think that we can imagine better and sort of more accurate Mars simulations here on Earth. Um, in situ is a great way to go. I mean, again, if trying to survive in the desert where you can still breathe the air and there's still waterfalls sometimes and there's various materials that you can that you know are there that you can try to survive from, that's a huge step forward. Uh, closed cycles are another situation. We need a way to sort of see, if, like with Biosphere 2, if you completely close up your habitat so that no air gets in, no air gets out, what are the shortfalls? How much material will you need to keep sending? And I can kind of imagine the best simulation would be something that's actually in some kind of vacuum chamber, like a big vacuum chamber that actually simulates the lack of atmosphere, the 
you know, the cold temperatures, something that is like a better simulation, but here on Earth, so that if anything goes wrong, you can rescue the astronauts inside and get them more supplies and so on. And it's like every time you need to resupply them, you write that down and then you figure out, your engineers figure out ways to minimize that from happening. It'll be a lot easier to solve those problems here on Earth before trying to solve them over on Mars. So I think that's a great idea. Like just keep building more and more accurate simulations of Mars here on Earth until we really feel like we've got the most of the challenges sorted out and we feel fairly comfortable that, okay, now we're ready to try and send people to Mars for longer and longer periods. I love that idea. In it. Hey Fraser, how do you collect new questions from all your videos? Pay your children to do it? An Excel script? A full-blown AI? Uh, no, just hard work. Um, so I get, I don't know, uh, probably a couple of hundred comments a day on all of the videos and I just take time to go through the videos and collect the questions and I, have a, I do have a spreadsheet where I drop interesting questions into that spreadsheet and then I give them a topic and then they just build up and then after a while I, I will, each time I'm ready to do a question show, I'll assign the question show number beside the questions that I want to tackle. And some have been there for a while and I just keep avoiding them. Um, others are sort of, the, they're great right away and I want to jump into the latest show with them. And it's getting harder and harder. It's getting, each time I do a question show, it gets incrementally more difficult to put the show together because I'm, I'm running this mental simulation of like, where are we at with the conversation that we're having on this channel? The kinds of questions that people ask today are a lot more finely nuanced and more detailed and more knowledgeable than they were when we started. And I think that's just because you've been asking questions, I've been looking for answers, we've been pulling this information, we've been learning together, and it's getting sort of a more sophisticated audience. And I think I'm getting better at what I do as well. So um, I'm trying to minimize answering the same questions over and over again, um, and it takes longer to find them. So keep bringing in the questions. Uh, I really enjoy doing the question shows. They're more work than they used to be, but they're still totally worth it. So uh, I hopefully we can just do this into the foreseeable future. Chocolate love. What I'm wondering is what effect less gravity will have on personal living and a young child growing up on Mars. Less muscle mass, weaker heart, less bone density. We have no idea what the low gravity of Mars, 38% of the gravity of Earth, is going to do to human beings over the long term. We would assume, based on how well astronauts have been able to survive in microgravity, uh, that they would be able to survive on the gravity of Mars and for probably a much longer period of time. But we don't know if like human fetus can gestate properly in 38% gravity and if they can't, could we figure out a way to solve that problem? But it might very well be that, that it just isn't possible. And nobody knows. If anybody tells you that it's possible, they just don't know. The, the experiments haven't been done. And so I think that before humans go to try to live on Mars and try to raise children on Mars, we need to perform experiments on animals in varying levels of gravity and some kind of centrifuge, some kind of rotating space station here in Earth orbit that will allow us to try you know, try lunar gravity, let's try Martian gravity, and find out if there's some place where, okay, 
That's the minimum amount of gravity that is needed for a human fetus to develop properly. And it might be that it can be done in microgravity and the belters can exist. And it might work on lunar gravity and it might work on Mars gravity. But until those experiments are run, it is just an, an unknown. And anyone who goes to Mars without knowing that and having children on Mars is taking an enormous risk. And that's the kind of thing that parents don't want to risk is the viability of their children at all. So more research is needed. Something anarchist. The future of space travel and settlement is with the private sector, not with government space programs. As I mentioned in a previous video, the, the exploration of space is going to remain a cost for a long time. There is no viable business model in the near term that makes any kind of sense. Not power from space, not uh, asteroids from space, not space tourism, nothing. And so it's going to require money to be spent, to be invested for year after year, decade after decade. And that's why we've seen so many companies, like as we're talking today, I think Vector Space just filed for bankruptcy. Space is really expensive and it eats companies for breakfast. And it's really hard to both run a profitable company where you're paying the payroll, payroll of all of your employees for the long period of time and yet not see any return on investment at all. SpaceX is one of the few companies that is figuring it out and they're doing it through launch providing, which kind of makes sense. And they will probably transition to using something like Starlink, which is a multi-trillion dollar industry if they can figure this out. And that will pay for a tremendous amount of space exploration. But in general, private industry just can't afford the kinds of losses year after year, decade after decade that it's going to cost to explore space, to settle other places in the solar system. That's going to be what governments do because they don't care about seeing a return on investment and they can invest in something like basic science and space exploration for year after year, decade after decade. The key is to commit to it, to put in that money over the long term until you get to a point where finally it is self-sustaining and it takes off. And we don't know how long that's going to take. So any companies that do try to go into it, they're going to have a rough go of it until they're able to figure some way to make their investments pay off. Sean Rogers. Where will the huge amounts of energy required for industrial processes come from? Earth has huge stores of carbon fuels and atmospheric oxygen for which to burn it. It's practically free energy. There are no fuel sources on Mars. Producing usable fuels requires energy for their conversion from raw materials. Solar is much less effective than on Earth. So on Earth, you can get about 1,000 watts per square meter for a solar panel. And on Mars, you can get 590 watts per square meter. And on Mars, you have uh, essentially no weather. I mean, you've got some clouds, you can have those awful dust storms, but in general, you've got clear skies and the best sunlight you could hope for. So in general, you're gonna get, you know, you're definitely not gonna get the same amount of energy use as you get on Earth, but you're gonna get quite a bit. It's not nothing. And so solar panels will probably be the way they'll do it on Mars. They'll get 
60% as much efficiency as they get on Earth. So they'll have to have more solar panels. But with solar panels, you can then run electricity. And with electricity, you can smelt. You can draw various uh, material out of the atmosphere. You can convert them into different kinds of, you know, I mentioned in that video, you can make plastics, you can make uh, fuel, all kinds of things. So I think there will also be, say, nuclear reactors, like the kilopower reactor for small areas. And that's how they're going to sustain it. Wind power, but wind doesn't work really well because the atmospheric pressure on Mars is so low. So solar panels, nuclear reactors, and then they'll just have to be very careful about how they use their energy. But think about how much energy we waste here on Earth, right? Typical household wastes a mountain of energy. Imagine if you had to get by using 60%, but you redesigned your entire house to be more energy efficient. It would be possible, I think. So we will find out. Darren Green. Oh, and thanks, Fraser, for the info on The Expanse. Like, Andrew, I didn't know season four had started already. That will be what I watch next. Yeah, just a reminder, The Expanse season four is on Amazon Prime. And of course, we binged it like three days. It's all gone. It was awesome. Season four was my favorite of all of the seasons of The Expanse so far. It was terrific. And I've heard that, in fact, it's like the weakest book in the series, but the show was great. So thank you, Amazon, for picking up The Expanse. And apparently Amazon has picked up a bunch of other really cool sci-fi shows, like they're gonna be doing the Culture series, they're gonna be doing the Foundation series. So uh, looks like we've got a lot of really cool sci-fi shows coming. And I'm so glad. <laughs> I mean, like Carl and I were watching The Mandalorian and it's, it's not great. Terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> But, of course, Baby Yoda casts this critic-proof sphere around the show. So, you know, I love Baby Yoda, and therefore I love The Mandalorian. But, um, but think about how much money is getting spent on things like The Mandalorian. $15 million an episode? Can you imagine how many cool sci-fi series could get adapted with that kind of money? So I hope that Amazon... Uh, just sees a tremendous return on investment from this. Lots of people sign up and we get to see lots more cool sci-fi turned into TV shows. And if you haven't already, watch The Expanse. Space Wee. Hi Fraser, if you stood up on Mars and looked at the sky, would you see as many stars as here on Earth or not due to the Martian dust? Thanks. As I mentioned just a couple of questions ago, uh, the skies on Mars are very clear because they're very thin. And there are definitely times when the wind blows up and you get the dust storms going. And in fact, the dust can uh, block the entire planet and it makes it very dark. But most of the time, the skies are pretty clear. And so if you were out on the surface of Mars and looking up into the sky, you would see the stars like if you were in a perfect dark sky preserve here on Earth. Uh, probably better. So Mars is going to be a great place to set up telescopes to observe the universe as well. Uh, I would love to stand on Mars. It would be cool to stand on Mars and see the Earth and the moon with your eyes. That would be, be mind-bending. 007, The Matrix 007. I have a quick question. If a country is the first to land on Mars, naturally that country will be the first to harness the resources of the planet. Uh, are any other countries allowed to harness the resources too? I shortened your question because it wasn't a quick question, but I get what you're asking, which is 
Like, who owns the rights of stuff on Mars? And if, say, SpaceX or the United States lands on Mars and starts mining resources on Mars, uh, can other countries come? So the Outer Space Treaty, which was a document signed by pretty much all of the spacefaring nations, says that nobody is allowed to own, claim any place in the solar system. So, so the United States can't claim Mars. Um, now, you can go and use the resources on these places. So, for example, if SpaceX lands a spacecraft on Mars, then they can mine some resources to return that spacecraft back to Earth, but they can't own it. And so it's like you can't stake a claim. Say you find a rich vein of lithium on Mars. You can't say, that's my lithium, you can't have it. Anyone who is allowed to come over and start digging in that lithium and take as much as they want. If you create a station on Mars, anyone is allowed to use your station. You can't turn them away. Uh, so the rules of the exploration of outer space right now are very hard for anyone to kind of stake a claim, set territory, borders, boundaries, and profit uh, to any extent from what they find. But I guarantee that as people get closer and closer to actually being able to explore space, being able to actually settle other planets, those rules will be revised. There'll be a new version of the Outer Space Treaty, which will be a lot more specific and deal with the realities. Because really, the Outer Space Treaty was all about not putting nuclear weapons in space where you could drop them down with a moment's notice to anyone on Earth. And not really about who's going to own what out there in the universe. But right now, nobody's allowed to own anything. Larkin Chance. It's occurred to me that there's a turf war going on between Microsoft, Apple, Google, Comcast, and other ISP providers. With the demise of TV, the pie has suddenly gotten a lot larger, and the companies that I've mentioned above, the big boys, are reorganizing themselves into global advertising platforms. They will use their influence to exclude small content producers. Signed, a very unhappy camper. As a small content producer, right, who is essentially funded by advertising on Universe Today website and 850 amazing patrons, there has never been a better time for small content producers, right? How could my this content exist in any other platform? How can I even be able to do this job in any other time in the history of humanity, right? Like that would be my pitch. Oh yeah, like a, I'm a 48-year-old a uh, Canadian who wants to just do videos about space and have sort of mediocre production quality, except for Carla's amazing lighting, right? That's amazing. Um, you know, borrowed from NASA uh, footage. It wouldn't fly. Uh, I, would, I would be turned down by National Geographic and other traditional gatekeepers. So this is the best. Right? I get to just do what I love. I get to, I decide what topics I want to research. I create videos as quickly as I can and I interact directly with the audience. I think that there is going to be some death throes as the, as the sort of old media entities uh, run out of money and, sort of, and things consolidate and change. But I, I have 850 customers. I can't imagine how any of that will impact me in any way, shape, or form. If YouTube goes away, I'll host my videos on my own website. It's fine. So I think things are going to be great. And if there's content, then you're finding my content. 
So don't worry about it. Things are going to be great, uh, better than they have ever been because now you can find content that you really love. Aaron, their number assumes the evolution of transistor density being the same as finding new exoplanets. Seems like a guess rather than solid science. I had a couple of people mention that they were skeptical about 100 million exoplanets. This is just a power law. And the power laws fall on sort of, they show up again and again whenever you have some kind of technological advancement. Uh, the, the price of solar panels, the, the density of camera sensors, and the number of exoplanets, the, the cost of batteries, like all of these things are they fall under a power law. They fall under different power laws, right? Not everything is going to double. Like battery prices are not dropping as quickly as uh, transistor densities are growing, but they still all are technology. They all fall under these power laws, exponential uh, growth. And this kind of growth is always surprising, right? Nothing in our world prepares us to deal with things that grow at this exponential level. And yet, here we are with 50 years of the growth of computers and now we come to expect it. Now we assume like, yeah, two years from now, I'm going to be able to buy a much more powerful computer than I can today. 10 years from now, my computer is going to be hundreds of times more powerful than it is today and so on and so forth. And as long, you know, the methods of finding planets is technology. It's computers, it's CCDs, it's computers that scan the sky, it's technology. And so technology follows the rules. We don't know what's going to cause it. We just can follow the curve, recognize it as a power law curve, and then just chart where it's going to go into the future. And who knows? It could go faster, it could go slower, uh, but these things have a way of accelerating. All right, those are the questions this week. Thanks everyone for sending them in. I really appreciate it. Um, I need you to double down on giving us questions because we're gonna be attending the American Astronomical Society meeting from January 2nd to 8th in Hawaii. And my goal is to try and take as many questions that you send to me and pass them along to the actual scientists. So you're gonna see guest answerers who are experts in all these different fields. I will. I will get them to sit down and give us answers for all the topics that you're curious about and especially the stuff that I have no idea about. So put in your zingers and I will gather those up and I will take them to the experts and then I will bring their answers back and we will share them here. All right, we'll see you next week.